Matthew chapter 5. Here in Matthew chapter 5, we have the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. These verses we've been looking at have been uh, known or known as the Beatitudes, attitudes that ought to be in us. And they launch what has come to be regarded as the greatest sermon that's ever been preached by the greatest preacher who's ever lived. And the reason it's called the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, is because Jesus was on this mount when he preached this sermon. As far as we know, it's the first recorded sermon that Jesus preached. And in this sermon, Jesus defined for us the character of the kingdom of heaven. How do you get into the kingdom of heaven? How do you get into heaven? You ever wondered that? Well, Jesus tells us. Jesus answers the questions, how do we enter into the kingdom of heaven? And what are the defining marks of true saving faith? as well as the marks of true godliness. In other words, what does true spirituality look like? What distinguishes true religion from dead religion? Now, before you start thinking this is all about what I do or what you do, I want you to listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor in England, had to say. Quote, The Christian gospel places all its primary emphasis upon being rather than doing. The gospel puts a greater weight upon our attitude than upon our actions. Its main stress is on what you, what you and I essentially are rather than on what we do. A Christian is something before he does anything. And we have to be Christian before we can act as Christians. Now that is a fundamental point. Being is more important than doing. Attitude is more significant than action. We are Christians, and our actions are the outcome of that. End quote. I say that, and he says that, because a lot of people think this, these, this is all about what you do, and there is an element of what you do, yes. But remember, the first four Beatitudes are, out, are all about true saving faith. You cannot be something, or sorry, you cannot do something before you be something. It's difficult to live in our world, isn't it? I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at men and women who live by worldly values, and it's hard not to be unaffected by what I see. How about you? You find it hard not to be unaffected by what you see? Sadly, we too often admire the world's so-called beautiful people. Their sophistication, their looks, the pleasures, the importance draw us. We, 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 a lot of people love shows like Entertainment Tonight, and we love to look at the, the tabloids and what's going on with these so-called beautiful people. We appreciate the values which their lives express. Now that whole package of values is often appealing to us because we tend to associate those values with fulfillment. We think, well, you know, that person's rich or that person's beautiful or that person's famous or whatever, and, and they must be fulfilled. To be and to behave like the people you have status in our society becomes our dream. Too often we want to be like them. Well, in the Beatitudes, Jesus, he comes along and he just shatters worldly dreams and rejected worldly goals. 
He set up a whole new package of values for us here, didn't he? There's a new package that he's given us. He's proclaiming that in these, you're going to find fulfillment. Not in the world's values, but in these values, you will find blessedness, happiness, joy, fulfillment, satisfaction. Fulfillment, by the way, is not in pleasure. It's in longing. It's not in satisfaction, but in hunger. It's not in popularity, but in commitment to an unpopular cause. That's what Jesus says. It's not in competition. It's not in winning, but it's in helping others. That's what Jesus says. That's where you're going to find fulfillment and satisfaction. I'll remind you there is a progression in these Beatitudes. The first four stand together. The last four stand together. One Bible commentator put it this way, quote, it's on the screen, they deal entirely with inner principles, principles of the heart and the mind. They are concerned with the way we see ourselves before God. The last four are outward manifestations of those attitudes. Those who in poverty of spirit recognize their need of mercy are led to show mercy to others. Those who mourn over their sin are led to purity of heart. Those who are meek always seek to make peace. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are never unwilling to pay the price of being persecuted for righteousness' sake. End quote. So do you see how number one matches up with number five? Number two matches up with number six? Three matches up with seven? Four matches up with eight? Over the past several weeks, we've studied the four elements of true saving faith. Jesus has laid them out here for us in these first four Beatitudes. And in case you've missed some of that, let me repeat them for you. Here's the four elements of true saving faith. Number one is humility. Number two is repentance. Three is meekness. And number four is righteousness, particularly Christ's righteousness. That's how you get into heaven. You cannot get into heaven through any other attitudes. Okay? Proud person does not get into heaven. People who do not repent of their sin do not get into heaven. Those who try to proclaim their own rights and do things their own way do not get into heaven. It's God's way and only His way. And without Christ's righteousness, you and I have no hope. So Lord willing, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the last four Beatitudes. And here we're going to see how we are going to give evidence of Christian virtue in our lives. The person who, is, who has the first four attitudes in their life will evidence the last four attitudes in their life. So how does a person become merciful? Because that's what our fifth beatitude's all about. If you look at verse 7, Matthew 5, verse 7, it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So what is a person, or how does a person become merciful? Or another way you could ask the question is, where does mercy come from? Well, the answer is found in the preceding verses. And let's read the preceding verses. Go to verse 3. Go to verse 3. It says, Blessed are the pure, or the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
So how does a person become merciful? Well, mercy comes from a heart that is, number one, first of all, felt its spiritual bankruptcy. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. This person has come to grieve over their sin and has learned to be meek and then therefore to cry out to God for God to satisfy us with the righteousness that we need. This is the person who is going to become merciful. If I was to give you what this is in one word, it would be the word regeneration. Regeneration. Ultimately, mercy comes from God then, doesn't it? A person can't be saved without God, and a person's not going to be sanctified without God either. You're not going to live the right life before God without God's help. So the key to becoming a merciful person then is to become a broken person. You get the power to show mercy from the real feeling in your heart that you actually owe everything that you are and you have to God's mercy. That's the person who will be merciful. And so if you want to become a merciful person, it is absolutely essential then that we cultivate the correct view of God and of ourselves. The reality is every joy and virtue of our lives is owing to the undeserved mercy of God. Everything you are, everything you have, comes from God. So how does a person become merciful? Through God's enabling then. You can't be poor in spirit and meek and righteous and mourn over your sin without God doing that work in your heart. Number two, what is mercy? Or another way you could ask it is, what does a merciful person look like? God says, this merciful person will be blessed, going to be happy, fulfilled, and have the satisfaction. Well, what, what does that look like? Well, Thomas Watson defined it this way, and I'll explain it in a moment. But anyway, he said this, quote, It is a melting disposition whereby we lay to heart the miseries of others and are ready on all occasions to be instrumental for their good, end quote. Say, if you didn't quite understand that, let me, let me put it to you another way. Expositor's Bible commentary says this, that mercy embraces both forgiveness for the guilty and compassion for the suffering and needy, end quote. Okay, do you see the two aspects there? The two aspects are, number one, if you want to be a merciful person, you're going to forgive those who are guilty. And then you're going to have compassion for those who are suffering and those who are in need. Let me give you an illustration, okay? Uh, in case you're not getting the point, hopefully this will help you. If you don't know this by now, I really like the Chronicles of Narnia. And the first book I ever read and the first movie that came out was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in that book, there's a, a boy named Edmund, and he's in a family of, of there's four siblings. Anyway, Edmund goes into the wardrobe, which was the entrance into this world called Narnia. And Edmund's love for Turkish delight actually caused him to betray his family. And while he was in Narnia, he comes across the White Witch. She's kind of 
kind of taken over Narnia. She, it's always wintertime. It's, it's never summer. It's never spring, never autumn. It's, it's always winter. And so Edmund comes into contact with the White Witch, and she, she puts her charm on. And Edmund uh, asks for Turkish delight. Edmund's love for the Turkish delight actually caused him to end up betraying his family. The White Witch wanted Edmund's brothers and sisters. She wanted to kill them. And she purposely gave him that Turkish delight so to kind of trick him so that he would bring his brothers and sisters to the Narnia so she could capture him and kill him. Well, he falls into the trap set by the witch, and since it tasted so good, Edmund became obsessed with this Turkish delight. He wanted more Turkish delight, and she promised him more if she would bring or if Edmund would bring back his brothers and sisters. So the temptation of the delicious Turkish delight became stronger than even his family loyalty. He wanted the Turkish delight even more than he loved his brothers and sisters. And in this next slide here, it's hard to see. It's kind of light in here. But anyway, Edmund comes back later in the book. The witch gets Edmund. She turns against him. And uh, she actually tied him up to the tree. So the witch was preparing to kill Edmund, but he was rescued by some of the soldiers from Aslan's army. And they, and they brought Edmund back to, to Aslan's camp. There's a ne- the next slide shows something else here that we need to think about, because in this slide, Edmund comes back to the camp, and of course, he meets Aslan, and Aslan had a talk with him. But before we get to that, notice he's hugging his sister, his little sister, Lucy. And this is after he's betrayed his family for Turkish delight. And his family knew what had happened. Edmund comes face to face with his brothers and sisters. And at this point, there could have been a huge family brawl. You and I would be irritated over a brother and sister betraying us over food. But they didn't do that. There was no brawl. There was no harsh words. In fact, after talking with Edmund, Aslan said, here's what he said in the book, here is your brother. Aslan was speaking to to Edmund's brothers and sisters, and he said, here's your brother. There's no need to talk to him about what is past. Aslan forgave Edmund. And you can see here in in the next photo, Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus Christ, had a talk with Edmund. And so Aslan rescued Edmund from the White Witch and from his own sin and from his own treason and betrayal, and Edmund was restored to his brothers and sisters. That's a good picture of mercy. That's a good picture of mercy. Edmund deserved to die for his treason and his betrayal. His brothers and sisters could have gotten angry with him, but they didn't. They forgave him. Sometimes it helps us to see what something is by seeing the opposite. And so to do that, we want to go to Scripture. I've tried to find where mercy is actually contrasted with its opposite in the Scripture. And so we'll look at just a couple examples, particularly from Matthew. Matthew gives us some very helpful illustrations so we understand what mercy actually looks like. All right, Matthew chapter 9, here's what it says. Matthew 9, verse 10, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, 
many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. Jesus quotes from the Old Testament here, and he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. First of all, we see here that mercy is not sacrifice. Mercy is not sacrifice. In this illustration, the opposite of mercy is sacrifice. You say, I don't get it. Well, let me explain it. All right. In verse 13, Matthew chapter 9, God said this, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Some people think, hey, if I sacrifice, well, you know, then I'm being a merciful person. No, you're not. That's a quote, by the way, from Hosea chapter 6, where God there is actually accusing the people that their love was like the dew on the grass. Wake up in the morning, you ever seen dew on the grass, right? But on a nice summer day, how long does the dew on the grass stay on the grass? Doesn't stay very long, does it? So God was describing his people, their love was kind of like that dew on the grass. It's, it's there for a short time and it's gone. It's there for only a brief hour or two in the morning and it's gone and all that's left is some empty form of burnt offerings. The point is that, that God's trying to make there is that God wants his people to actually be alive in their hearts. It's not enough to just offer sacrifices. God wants us to be alive in our hearts. He wants us and them, by the way, to have feelings of affection toward Him and mercy toward each other. He does not want a people who are just going about their so-called religious duties and activities kind of like a robot in some formal way just because they've, you know, it's, it's what you're supposed to do. No, God doesn't want that. And here in, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus saw the sinners as people who were sick. They were miserable people in need of a physician. Did they think that? No, of course not. They didn't think that way. The, these were the people who were, the, who were rich. They were the, the rich money movers of the day, so to speak. But Jesus said they were sick. But he had the medicine. They didn't see that, though. But all that the Pharisees saw was uh, uh, the, the ceremonial problem with becoming contaminated by eating with sinners. <laughs> Did you notice that's what they said about Jesus? Oh, he's eating with the sinners. Oh, no, we don't want to become contaminated. Lest, you know, we, we, we be anywhere near Jesus and these sinners. Their life seemed to be just a list of rules. Something huge was at stake here. But they couldn't see it. They couldn't even feel it. They were enslaved to the trivial issues of ceremonial cleanness when eternal sickness was about to be healed. They had Jesus right there, the physician who could heal them of their greatest sickness, and they couldn't see it. So number one, mercy is not sacrifice. Number two, mercy is not bondage to religious details. <laughs> The Pharisees thought that. They were in bondage to religious details, and Jesus had a lot to say about that. 
Look at Matthew chapter 23. Look what Jesus said. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. You say, well, what are those? Jesus said what the weightier matters of the law were. He said justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. By the way, in case you missed the point, you know what a gnat is? That is a really small bug. That is a really small insect. You know, if, if, if you want to know what it is, just get on your bike and go down the road with your mouth open. All right? You'll probably swallow one. All right? But you know what a camel is, right? I mean, it's a huge animal. It's bigger than a horse. So here they are. They're trying to strain out these little things when in reality they're swallowing huge animals. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. In, 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 in case you missed the point, here's the point. We need to ask the question, well, then what is the opposite of mercy according to what Jesus is saying here? The opposite of mercy is straining out little things, the little religious details, after, you know, here you go about these religious activities, they had these religious desires, and they would would exhaust the little details of life, like, Tithing, well, you know, should I tithe on my mint and my dill and my cumin, which are herbs, right? You know, you, you might grow a little dill plant or a cumin plant. You know, there, should I tithe that? You know, should I take my 10% off the plant and take that to the church? <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're looking at all these little details, but they miss the bigger matters. And so the lesson we learn from Jesus is that a great obstacle and really an enemy to mercy is our preoccupation with the trifles of life. There's a bondage here. It's bondage to religious details. The bondage to triviality is the curse of the unmerciful. It's the curse of the unmerciful. So when Jesus says here, don't neglect the weightier matters of the law, he means, in other words, this. Beware of going through the day just doing only trivial things, thinking only trivial thoughts, feeling only trivial things, feelings, and then neglect things like mercy. There's a warning for us here. We need reality checks on a regular basis then, don't we? We need something to kind of help readjust ourselves because we get caught up in this world and we tend to think like the world too much instead of the way God thinks. Reality checks are a good thing. God's giving us a reality check here. The Lord wants us to kind of come and pinch ourselves. You know, punch ourselves in the leg, wake ourselves up. You know, what, what's real here? Why do we need to do that? Because sometimes we can just park out in front of the television and make no plans for the weightier matters of mercy. I'm not saying it's wrong to watch TV, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But if that's all we do, we go through life and we're focused on little details like, well, what's on television or some other religious detail and forget something like mercy, then we've missed the point. Jesus says here in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful... 
Therefore, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be satisfied and fulfilled and, and have real happiness and joy, you've got to make war against the bondage of religious and secular trifles. You've got to make war against it. And then devote yourself to the weightier matters of life, mercy being one of them. Jesus says it's one of the most important matters of your life. Is your life devoted to mercy? Number three, you say, well, I still don't understand what mercy is, okay? <clears throat> well, Jesus will help you out with another story. We find what mercy is in the parable of the Good Samaritan. All right, it's on the screen. Luke chapter 10 says this. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Good question. Good question. But I doubt he had the right attitude in saying that. But anyway, what do we have here? We have this man, this lawyer, ask Jesus how a person should act who may expect to find mercy at the judgment day. How do you inherit eternal life? Great question. How do you get to heaven? And Jesus answered here that the people who will receive the mercy of eternal life are those who've loved God with all their hearts and who have loved their neighbors as themselves. The two greatest commands, love God with all and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, blessed are those who are merciful now to their neighbor, for they're going to receive mercy of eternal life in the life to come, in the future. Now, this is going to be even more obvious when we actually look at the parable we haven't looked at the parable yet, because that's not the end of the story. All right? Jesus is about to tell who this lawyer's neighbor is. He's about to explain who is your neighbor. And in the process, we're going to learn something about mercy. What does it mean to be merciful? Well, look at uh, these verses here. Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus replied to the question, who is my neighbor? Here's what he says. A man was going down to Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest who was going down that road, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, ouch, by the way, Samaritans, in case you don't know, were not liked by the Jews. In fact, they hated the Samaritans because they were not purebred. They had intermingled with uh, the unpure Gentiles, so they hated the Samaritans. <clears throat> so Jesus is kind of slapping these Jews in the face by using the illustration of a Samaritan. But anyway, look what he says. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. What does compassion and mercy look like? Well, here's what it looks like. It says, He went to him 
bound up his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which is two days' wages, okay? Two days' wages. Gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. You notice the word mercy? Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, we don't have time to look at this parable in depth. Let me give you just four dimensions of mercy. Jesus mentioned the word mercy here, so that we're not just pulling things, uh, you know, rabbits out of hat kind of thing here. But there, in this parable, it gives us four dimensions of mercy. You want to put it this way, it's kind of like a photo. All right? We have a photo of mercy. If you want to know, get an idea of, well, what does mercy look like? Give me a photo of mercy. Here's, here's a photo of mercy. Positive aspects of mercy. Number one, mercy sees distress. You see that in verse 33. It sees distress. It says there that the Samaritan, as he was journeying, came to where he was and saw him. Mercy sees distress. Number two, it responds internally with a heart of compassion or pity toward a person in distress. Unlike the other guys, they saw the guy who's laying down, he's been beaten up, he's been robbed, they see the guy and they walk by him. That's not mercy. Mercy responds with a heart of compassion and pity toward the person in distress. And number three, it responds not only internally, but externally with a practical effort to relieve the distress. Someone who shows mercy does something toward the person in need. And in this case, what did he do? He bound him up, fixed his wounds, put something in his wounds to help heal the wounds, put him on his own beast, took him to a place where he could get some help, paid for someone to help him, and said, I'm coming back. And number four, the fourth dimension of mercy is that it happens even when the person in distress is by religion and race an enemy. Just, just think about that for a moment. If you had a Muslim or a Hindu attack you, kill your mother-in-law and your mother and, and your husband or your wife and your children, burn your house down, what would be your attitude toward that Hindu or Muslim? That's the kind of people we're talking about here. We're talking about our enemies. But even though there are enemies, we still should show love and compassion and pity and mercy toward these people who are our enemies. Even a Muslim and a Hindu who hate us and want to kill us. We Here we have a Samaritan. <laughs> And I love the way Jesus tells stories. Because Jesus, is, here he is, he's talking about this half-breed Jew that has some warped idea of religion and, and warped religious traditions who is stopping to help the Jew. And Jesus is talking to the Jews 
about this half-bred Jew whom they hate. I love it, don't you? And the people who should have helped the Jew didn't help him, but the guy whom they helped or they hate is the one who actually helped one of their fellow Jews. Do you see the irony in this? It's a great story. That's what mercy looks like, though. Mercy has an eye for distress. It's, it's, it's like radar. It's, it's, it's a GPS system honing in uh, on the global positioning system. You, you guys know what an EPIRB is? EPIRBs are things that, that are supposed to be on the boats. And, and, and as a hunter, I've occasionally taken an EPIRB out into the wilderness, into the bush. You know, if I'm all alone and I get hurt, you know, I break my back or something, and I can't get out of the bush to get to the hospital, how's somebody going to find me out in the bush? Guess what? They can find people who are out in boats, you know, lost at sea or in the bush, with EPIRBs. EPIRBs are these things, you know, you, you do the right thing with it, it sends up a signal to the satellite, and the satellite does its thing, and then eventually the emergency responders can, can get to within a couple meters of that signal. Mercy's kind of like that. Hones in on the GPS device, which is distress. Someone who's in need has an eye for distress, a heart for pity, effort to help, in spite of that person being your enemy. That's mercy. Number four, Jesus said that mercy is one of the weightier matters of life. This is not something that's insignificant, my friends. Okay? It is a weightier matter of life. In other words, it's one of the most important things that you can do. Mercy's always in danger of being neglected, sadly, because of our preoccupation with trifle things. Whether those things are secular or religious, whether those things are things like watching TV or consuming ourselves with some hobby or, or even some other religious trifle, these things can steal us away and distract us from what Jesus said are the most important things of life. You say, what, religious trifle? What, what's a religious trifle? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you what a religious trifle is. A religious trifle is any religious activity that does not cultivate a heart that's taken up with the weightier matters or the, the important matters of life, such as mercy. Well, let's see. You say, well, how, how do I know if, if I fit the bill on that one? Well, the proof of the religious pudding, so to speak, is in the power for you to actually see distress in someone else's life. Do you even notice when someone is in distress? Do you feel pity? Do you perform relief for that person who has a need? And are you willing to do it to someone who is your enemy? Are you willing to even do it for the person who would kill you if they had the chance? Third question we need to ask is, in what ways are we to be merciful? In what ways are we to be merciful? Well, Thomas Watson again said this. He said, quote, We must be merciful to the souls, names, estates, offenses, and wants of others. You say, I, uh, can you... Can you elaborate on that? Good. I'm glad you want to uh, some elaboration. Let me give you some elaboration on what, what this is all about. 
And in order to do that, I'm going to use some questions, okay? Here's the first question. How is mercy extended to the souls of others? How can you be merciful to someone else? Well, you can be merciful to that person by, number one, pitying them. Pitying their, their, their need, their desperate situation, their miserable condition. You can pity or you can have mercy in advising and exhorting sinners. The greatest problem we have is our sin. So if you exhort them and help them with their sin, you're showing mercy. Number three, in reproving disobedient sinners. Someone who is disobedient to God should not be just left alone in their sin. You need to go to that person. Matthew 18 says you go and you try to help the person. And if that's not enough, Matthew 18 says then you get someone else or a few other people in the congregation and then you go to that person and, and exhort them to repent of their sin. And if that doesn't do it, then the church is the last resort. The sin should become before the church. That's mercy, by the way. That's the merciful thing to do. We don't tend to think of excommunication as merciful, but God says it is. It's a merciful thing to do, helping that person with their greatest problem. You can pray for them. Praying for someone is a merciful thing to do. Preaching the Bible to someone is merciful. God's Word is uh, extreme help then, isn't it? In fact, God says it's every, it has everything we need for life and godliness. Preach the Word. Number six, be tender with someone's good name. In fact, Proverbs 22, verse 1 says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Do you understand what God's saying in Proverbs? Your name is more important than being a billionaire. If your name is mud and you're a billionaire, you have nothing. But if you're poor and you have a good name, you have everything. In what ways can we be unmerciful then to the names of others? If being merciful to people's names is important, as Thomas Watson said, how do we do that? How, what's the opposite? Well, you can slander them. <laughs> All right? Slandering somebody and taking a knife out, figuratively speaking, and stabbing them in the back with your knife, your verbal knife, is not being merciful. Number two, receiving slander and reporting what we hear is not being merciful. Okay? God has a lot to say about slander and gossip. Sadly, those have become the respectable sins of the Christian world. But God sees that as sin. It's not acceptable in His eyes. Number three, making more of their infirmities and less of their virtues. Isn't that what we tend to do, though? You know, we're very quick, <clears throat> very quick to look at people's sins. We can see people's sins easily. But do you ever commend them? Do, do you, or do you have a hard time seeing good things in people's lives? That's our, our nature. We, we're very, very easy, very easy to see people's sin. We're very slow to talk of the evidence of grace in other people's lives. May I remind you, the Apostle Paul, before he wrote to the church at Corinth, 
By the way, you read every chapter in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul had some other problem to deal with that church. That was a bad church. <laughs> but read chapter 1. Paul starts off by looking for evidence of grace. It's incumbent upon us to look for evidence of grace in people's lives. All right, number four, remaining silent when we hear another person slandered. If you hear somebody slandering another person, you need to say, whoa, hold on, I'm not listening to that. In fact, what you're doing is wrong. That's sin. That's slander. Don't do that. Number five, by bearing false witness. You can be unmerciful to someone by bearing false witness, by, by saying something that's not true, or not saying something that is true. Another question we need to ask is, well, then how can I be merciful to the estates and the offenses and wants of others? Thomas Watson gives a few things I've just drawn out of his book. Number one, that's and, and he didn't say these this way. I'm, I've, I've kind of adapted these for me, okay? But anyway, don't beat a man when he's down. Don't beat a man when he's down. But that's what we tend to do. You know, somebody's down, and we, 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 you know, we want to beat up on the guy. You know, he's sinned or whatever, he's done something wrong. Uh, now's a good chance to get at him, right? If a man, by the way, Thomas Watson says, if a man is your debtor, providence has frowned upon him where he actually can't pay you, then show some compassion to that man. That's what mercy does. Number two, mercy. Show mercy to those who have injured you. Somebody who's actually done wrong to you, mercy will overcome evil with good, Romans 12 says. Overcome evil with good. Number three, consider what you can do for the poor person. You come in contact with poor people. You know, consider what you can do for them. Uh, you know, may, maybe it's maybe all you can do is what the apostles said in the book of Acts. You know, gold and silver I don't have, but here's what I do have, and they gave them the gospel. Okay, maybe that's what all you can do. But at least you're showing mercy. Number four, pray for tenderness, pity, and compassion. We all can do that. And number five, don't be a Scrooge. That's my words, okay? You don't know who Scrooge is? Ebenezer Scrooge was, uh, was the man that Charles Dickens wrote about in his book, A Christmas Carol. Okay? You, does everybody know who Ebenezer Scrooge is? If you don't, you need to watch A Christmas Carol or read Dickens' book, A Christmas Carol. In, in that story, there's a guy named Ebenezer Scrooge, and he, he was a grumpy old man. He was a miserly old man. He was rich. But he refused to even pay for the coal so that the guy who was helping him could have a little warmth. <laughs> Grumpy man. Sadly, too many people are Scrooges. They have, but they don't give. God wants us to be generous with His money and His possessions. Notice I says it's His. It's all His. Your body is God's. Your money is God's. Your house is God's. Your car is God's. Your children are God's. Your grandchildren are God's. Everything you have is God's. It's not yours. And Corinthians says we are to glorify God with those things. Number four, our fourth question is this. Should a merciful person always show mercy? Are there any examples where we shouldn't show mercy? I don't know if you thought about this, but I've been trying to think about this. 
uh, it's good for us to think about this because real life is complex, isn't it? Real life is very complex, particularly for Christian people who know the Bible. Particularly for Christians who are serious about God's Word and want to live out their faith in this sinful world that we live in. I mean, just to give you a couple examples I've thought about. For example, um, can a Christian be consistently merciful and yet be a parent who actually spanks their child for being disobedient? Is that being merciful? Okay, if you don't have children, maybe that's not a good example for you. Let me give you a few others. Here's another question for you to think about. Can a Christian be consistently merciful and yet be an employer who pays good wages for excellent work but dismisses irresponsible employees who do poor quality work? Is that being merciful? Another example. Can a Christian be consistently merciful and be a member of parliament who actually enacts laws that give stiff penalties for drunk driving and child abuse? Is that being merciful? Here's another one. Can a Christian be consistently merciful and be a church member who follows the biblical mandate for church discipline and excommunicate another member of the church who's living in unforsaken, unrepentant public sin? Is that being merciful? Well, in case you don't know the answer to those, let me kind of expand upon this. In case you didn't figure it out, all all these different examples I've given you here are various spheres of our lives that we all deal with. All right? Uh, We got the sphere of the family, business, government, the church. And so my answer to the question here, should a merciful person always show mercy, is no. A merciful person should not always show mercy. In fact, what I'm going to try to show you here is there needs to be a mixture of justice and mercy in our lives. A mixture of justice and mercy. And in order to do that, we really need God's wisdom then, don't we? We need God's wisdom to know what to do in the various situations of our life. You know, in in this situation, you might need to show justice. In in another situation, you, you need to show mercy. Well, how do you know what to do? What do, what do you do? You need God's wisdom. God's will is that sometimes we give people what they deserve. And sometimes people need punishment. Sometimes people need reward. That's justice. And God's will is that sometimes we're going to give people better than what they deserve. <laughs> That's mercy. And so when justice is done, guess what you're doing? You're actually bearing witness to who God is. You're helping the world around you know that God is a God of justice. And when you show mercy, you're bearing witness to the truth that God is a God of mercy. Let me, let me expand upon these various spheres of life, okay? So you understand what I'm trying to say. Sometimes you will have to intermingle and mix together mercy and justice. How do you know what to do? Well, in, in this situation here, the next picture, for example, if you're a parent, what does a biblical parent do? A biblical parent is going to usually follow the wisdom of Scripture 
that says sparing the rod spoils the child. That's what the Bible says. But then there's going to be times when a child's fault is actually going to be forgiven. I've done this. There's times in, in, in my own children's life, they didn't get what they deserved. What did they deserve? They, they deserved to be disciplined for their sin. That's what they deserved. And in fact, I told them that. This is what you deserve. But instead, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you mercy. You're going to get what you don't. Or in fact, you're not going to get what you deserve. That's mercy. You deserve to be punished. But you know what? God loves us. And sometimes he doesn't give us what we deserve. Parents need to do that sometimes. Help their, their children to understand what is mercy. But then at other times, they need to give them what they deserve, which is discipline. How about a judge? Heaven forbid that any of you would ever be a judge one day, but if you were a biblical judge, usually a, a just judge is going to be impartial as he's giving out the sentence to the criminal. Notice I said a criminal, by the way. We're talking about somebody who's been convicted of a crime. All right, A just judge is going to put that guy away hopefully for a real long time. That's what he deserves, if the crime is serious. But there's going to be times when that just, or that judge, that biblical judge is going to show compassion for some greater good. How about an employer? Sometimes employers will pay good wages, fair wages. They're going to insist on good workmanship, and so they should. But sometimes there's going to be times when, when that that Christian employer might pay more than the person actually deserves. That's mercy. Sometimes the employer might go the extra mile, so to speak, with an employee. That's mercy. And then the last example on the screen here is a biblical church member will call public sin in the church to account. Church members should exercise discipline and even exclusion from the fellowship. But when we do that, if, if we ever have to do that, remember the Bible calls us to be patient and loving toward the person who is unrepentant of their sin. So how can we know when to show mercy or justice? How can we know? The only thing I can say to you because I have no hard and fast rules on this. I, you know, I can't tell you, well, if you're in this situation, do this. If you're in this situation, do this. The Bible doesn't do that, okay? The only thing I can tell you is get as close to Jesus as you possibly can. <laughs> because there is the, here is the God of wisdom, the God who is just, the God who is merciful. Study Him. Know Him well. That's all I can tell you, okay? There's no fixed rules. And, and by the way, I don't think that's an accident. I, I don't think it's an accident that you can't find the list of rules in the Bible. God doesn't say, you know, do this in this situation, but if this person does this, you know, let them have it. No, it, it doesn't tell you all that. The Beatitudes, or this Beatitude says, blessed are the merciful. Well, how could Jesus have worded that beatitude? Well, Jesus could have said, well, blessed are those who know exactly when and how to show mercy in all circumstances. No, that's, that's not what Jesus said. We've got to be merciful people 
even when we're acting in severity as we are carrying out justice toward an individual. So if you're a merciful person, you know what? As a parent, if you're, if, if you're bringing justice, you, stu- you still need to be a merciful person as you're bringing justice on your child or your grandchildren. The employer is going to show mercy to, to the employee who has failed, who needs to be fired. You can still show mercy as you fire that individual. Mercy is going to show through in all of those examples. The heart of mercy is going to show through, even when you have to bring justice. Number five, what are the signs that I am merciful? How do you know if you're merciful? Well, as we think about this, let me give you some questions, okay? These questions will help you to know if you are merciful. Number one, how do you feel when someone slanders you? How do you feel when somebody slanders you? Do you you know what I mean by slander? Slander is when someone is talking bad about you and saying things that aren't true. That hurts, doesn't it? It, it, By the way, it even could be true, but maybe they're kind of twisting things. None of us likes that. Okay, that hurts. Well, how do you feel? Do you feel sorry for yourself? Do you feel sorry for yourself when someone's saying bad things about you? To other people? Well, if you feel feel sorry for yourself, your problem is you're too sensitive. Okay? You're too sensitive. Well, some people get mad, don't they? Somebody said something nasty about me. I didn't like that, so I'm going to get mad. Well, then your problem is you're proud. You're proud. If you get angry, you're proud. You're not poor in spirit. But do you have a concern for the person who is slandering you? Do you have a concern for that person who's slandering you? Then if you do, then that's a merciful attitude. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, quote on the screen, Does it not follow inevitably that if I have seen and experienced all of the first four Beatitudes, that my attitude towards everybody else must be completely and entirely changed? If all that is true of me, I no longer see men as I used to see them. I see them now with a Christian eye. I see them as the dupes and the victims and the slaves of sin and Satan and of the way of the world. Because of that, of course, I can be and must be merciful with respect to them. I differentiate between the sinner and his sin. I see everybody who is in a state of sin as one who is to be pitied. End quote. Is that how you view people? Even when they're slandering you? Well, you say, okay, well, what do you say when somebody slanders you? Okay? What you act, how you actually respond to somebody slandering you and stabbing you in the back reveals a lot about you, doesn't it? For example, do you attack with harsh words? Somebody says something nasty about you to other people. One of our natural tendencies is to come back and say, Oh, yeah? Well, I got some nasty things to say about you. And we just let it loose. Well, if we do that, our problem is we're not meek. Meek person has power under control. Do you defend yourself? Somebody slanders you, stabs you in the back. Is your immediate response to start defending yourself? Say, oh, man, that's not true. 
Well, then you're not humble. You're not poor in spirit. Another way we could respond is to just laugh. <laughs> you know, we hear somebody saying bad things about us behind our back. We just laugh. Well, then you're not broken over that person's condition. The proper way to respond is to do nothing. Somebody slanders you, the proper thing is to say nothing. That's what Jesus did. People slandered Jesus, he, particularly when he was on trial. Remember he was on trial? People were saying that these false witnesses brought against him. Pilate wanted him to say something, but Jesus said nothing. Didn't even defend himself. That's a good example, isn't it? Well, what do you do when somebody hurts you? Okay, What you do is going to show whether or not you're a merciful person, right? Do you seek revenge? Oh, man, this, this person's done something nasty to me. I'm going to get them back. That's revenge. And if that's your attitude, then you're not meek and you're not merciful. Do you want to punch and push and throw a fit? Is that what you want to do? Then you're not a broken person. You're not mourning. How about nothing? <laughs> what do you want to do? Nothing? <laughs> well, then you have control, but you're still not merciful, okay? Just to do nothing is not enough. Mercy actually does something. Mercy wants to help the person who has hurt you. That's being merciful. Maybe you can seek a way to help the person overcome their problem. That person has a problem, don't they? They're going around sinning by slandering you. They have a problem. It's called sin. The merciful person will try to help that person with their sin. That's mercy. A sixth question is this. When do the merciful receive mercy? Look at Matthew 5, verse 7. Okay? When, it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive or obtain mercy. Those words, shall obtain or shall receive, are in the future tense. In other words, it's not going to happen in this life. Okay, As you give out mercy to people around you in this life, God will reward you in your next life. Okay, After you die, God will reward you. Well, then you say, well, why will only merciful people find mercy from God in the judgment day? I mean, doesn't the Bible say that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone? Isn't that what the Bible says? <laughs> I mean, the text actually says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Well, in the age to come, when, when every Christian faces God, the people who are going to receive mercy from God are people who have, who have been merciful in this life. Is that a salvation by works? not a salvation by works we don't earn god's mercy by our mercy no of course not i mean that that's a contradiction in terms isn't it earned mercy is a contradiction in terms you don't earn mercy because mercy is undeserved if mercy's earned it's not mercy it's a wage isn't it if you get something you earn it's a wage if we get anything good at judgment day or at the judgment seat of christ it's only mercy it's 100 percent unmerited mercy so when god asks for a record of your mercy at judgment day he's not going to be asking for some 
uh, punch time card, okay? I don't know if you've ever used one of those. I've worked at places, you, you come into the building, particularly in these big factories, you got these, these time clocks, right? You, t- you take your little card out, and you punch it, and the machine punches your card. It tells you exactly when you arrive, and when you leave the building, you take your card, bonk, it punches it again. So the boss and the people who are doing all the accounting and the financial books know how long did you work. So when you get to heaven, you're not going to hand God your time card and say, hey, God, here's how much mercy I have. Please reward me accordingly. No. (laughs) You're not going to do that. You're not going to say, hey, God, I got eight hours of mercy I put in this week. No. That's a wage. That's a wage. You get get what you deserve. Mercy is something undeserved. Instead, what is God going to do? God's going to say, you know, Scott, would you please hand me your medical chart? I want to look at your medical chart, see what's your health, you know, what's your state look like here. So you're going to hand God your medical chart. He's going to read that medical chart. It's going to say everything about you that he already knows because he's written it. He's going to read the evidence of how you've trusted in him as your, uh, as your physician. He's the great physician. He's going to prescribe the right medicine, of course. The therapy of the Holy Spirit is going to take effect in your life. He's going to, he's going to be able to see if, you, if you've relied upon him for your spiritual health. He's going to see the evidence of your faith. And he's going to complete your healing. And you're going to be made like Jesus Christ as you're going to see him as he is. And he's going to welcome you into the kingdom of heaven forever. The Bible says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So my friend, what makes you merciful? What makes you merciful? Please understand this. It's the grace of God that makes you merciful. It's unmerited. So it actually comes to this. If you're not merciful, guess what? (laughs) There is only one explanation if you are not a merciful person. You have never understood the grace of God and the mercy of God. That means you're outside Jesus Christ. It means you are still in your sins and that your sins are unforgiven and you're on your way to hell. Can I be any more blunt? I don't want to beat around the bush because this is a matter of your eternal destiny. I will not beat around the bush on such an important matter. Okay? If you're not a merciful person, you don't, then, then you're not in the kingdom of heaven. So I'm pleading with you to examine your heart to see if you are really in the kingdom of heaven or not. Well then, if you're a Christian, let me ask you this. Are you merciful? How often are you merciful? Are you sorry for every sinner even though that sinner has offended you? Do you care about that person's condition even after they've slandered you and gossiped about you and and maybe even stolen from you or done something other nasty to you? Do you have pity upon people who are actually victims of this world? Do you have pity upon those people? Do you have pity upon the people whose who, who evidence that the devil is attacking them, their own indwelling sin is, is wreaking havoc in their life? Do you pity those people? If this attitude of mercy is not always evident in your life, then guess what you need to do, my friend? You need to repent. 
I need to repent. I don't always show mercy. That's a problem. That's a sin. I need to repent when I don't show mercy toward people who have, need to sh- have mercy shown toward them. So for you, my non-Christian friend, you need to become a Christian. You're not in the kingdom of heaven. For you, my Christian friend, the reality is none of us are always going to show mercy. So what we need to do is repent of that sin and forsake that sin and ask God to enable us by His grace to be merciful people. May God help us. May God make us merciful.